If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And as you are uh, turning there, I do want to take a moment uh, to bring you the uh, warmest of greetings from your sister church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, namely Christ Church Presbyterian. Uh, We are nine years old. Uh, It's been a joy uh, to know you uh, for many, many years, uh, even longer uh, than uh, nine years, as in my previous congregation uh, in the Atlanta area, I had the privilege of of coming here and uh, and knowing you and ministering among you, and uh, this... uh, this definitely outdoes the Knobbly Hill uh, Community Center uh, by a thousandfold. Uh, but the, the blessing is, uh, is that whether we're worshiping in a community center or under a tree or in a fantastic late 18th century architectural gem, uh, we are with the Lord and he is with us and we are blessed beyond measure. Amen. We're blessed beyond measure, so praise the Lord, and it's a a joy to be here with your uh, minister, uh, Benjamin Wantrop, and uh, lovely to have dinner with them last night and to fellowship and to hear all the Lord is doing among you. And uh, my prayer, uh, particularly after this past week as we have focused our attention on evangelism and mission, my prayer, and I'll ask you to join me, perhaps you're already praying it, is that every one of these seats would be full that we would not have small ambitions as it concerns what the Lord would do uh, in Newcastle and in Charleston. Uh, Let's pray that these seats would be full and let's not think and pray in small ways. Let's think and pray in big ways and trust the Lord uh, will work in his perfect timing in these glorious ways. It's wonderful to hear all the coos and the child, uh, of the children, all of the, uh, the seeing all the children worshiping and singing the psalms and paying attention to the word, and it's such a blessing uh, for me. We have had what one uh, member uh, has called in our church a baby tsunami. Uh, we have had ten babies born in the last six months at Christ Church, and we have three more on the way, and it is glorious. It is absolutely glorious, and we praise the Lord. It's so important uh, that the church continues to grow in that way. Well, if you'll look with me at Romans chapter 5 and beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our loving and most merciful Father, we bow before you on this Lord's Day morning and we cry out to you that you would speak to us and that by the illumination of your Holy Spirit we would hear you, that we would believe you, that our eyes would be set upon Christ, our life and righteousness, and that we would respond to you by grace through faith. Oh, Father, help us to recognize more and more the sinfulness of sin and the sin that we've inherited from Adam. But also, Lord, show us, show us Christ, the second Adam, the life-giving Adam. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been in the book of Romans in my own congregation uh, for uh, almost 60 weeks. Uh, so almost, almost 60 sermons. We're just beginning chapter 8. And as you can imagine, there's a lot going on here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I, I didn't count up how many sermons I preached on this section in my congregation, but there are many. Uh, and so what, what I, I want to do this morning is really introduce you uh, to Romans 5, 12 through 21, and uh, t- try to help us to recognize the representative nature of being in Adam and being in Christ. It's such an important, these are such important categories for understanding the gospel, understanding the book of Romans, and understanding really the entirety of the message of the Bible. And so I hope we'll all be encouraged uh, this morning. Now, I I do trust that we're all familiar with the nature and meaning of representation. That is, what the dictionary defines as, quote, the action of speaking or acting on behalf of someone. Of speaking or acting on behalf of someone. While it might not always be on the front of our minds... Uh, representation is a common characteristic in our lives and in our society, isn't it? One obvious example is the very structure of our government. I'm thinking this morning of our own government in America, our local government, representative government, our state representative government, and our federal representative government. Our government is indeed a representative one. Indeed, when we elect a man or a woman from our district to serve In the United States House of Representatives, that person will represent us in Washington. 
and act and vote on our behalf, like it or not. Like it or not, they will act and vote on our behalf. These elected officials represent their constituents and their actions and votes affect us in numerous ways. The same, of course, is true of our president. He represents us and makes decisions on our behalf and his leadership and decisions affect our lives in very significant ways, from the gas pump to federal taxes to national security. Because he is our president, his decisions make a big impact on our nation and on our lives from grocery stores to battlefields. The matter of representation and its effects is also true for sports teams, isn't it? The actions of one person representing his or her team, such as a team captain or a coach, could bring disqualification or disgrace to uh, an organization, uh, an athletic team. Uh, there are always these scandals going on in athletics, right? Uh, I think of college uh, football, American football, where uh, the coach and the coaching staff are doing illegal things to get good players onto their teams. And, and when they are caught, uh, they are having to forfeit the opportunity to be in championship games or even to play altogether. So the, th- what these coaches do, what team captains do, can have an impact on the entire team. Alternatively, through hard work, strong performance, and competing according to the rules, the captain or coaches could lead a team to victory and glory. Well, this morning, as we consider this section in Paul's epistle to the Romans, we're going to see that judgment and salvation are indelibly linked to two men. Two men. Two representatives. The first man... Adam, representing all of humanity, and the second man, Jesus Christ, representing all of those for whom he died and rose again, all those who by grace, through faith, believe in him. Beloved, if you want to understand the central message of the Bible, and if you want to grasp the overall sweep of redemptive history, indeed the gospel itself, it's paramount that you and I understand the doctrine of federal headship. Federal headship. The federal headship of Adam over the entire human race and the federal headship of Jesus over his redeemed. Again, this is called federal theology. Dear ones, it's no exaggeration to say that these 10 verses in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, are some of the most important in all of the Bible. Why? Because they provide an interpretive key to understanding, once again, the general sweep of redemptive history relative to creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. These verses also answer those pressing questions that often burn in people's hearts. Questions such as, why is the world the way it is today? So filled with wickedness and pain and suffering and corruption. Questions like, why is my heart so sinful and inclined towards evil? Questions like, is there any hope for a guilty sinner like me. Maybe you you came in here this morning thinking, is there any hope for a sinner like me? 
Or perhaps you've been wondering what the main message of the Bible is. What the main message of the Bible is, these 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different authors. Are these authors all essentially proclaiming the same thing? Or are we to believe the liberal, unbelieving academics who say that there's really no connection between these books and we ought not to give any serious attention to them? Well, dear ones, this morning I want to give a general introduction to this section, and my prayer is that it will help us to unpack, once again, the, the unsearchable riches of, of Jesus Christ and these, these ten gospel-saturated verses here at the end of Romans 5. If you're taking notes this morning, there are really just two, two headings. Uh, the first one is sin and death through Adam. Sin and death through Adam. And the second is righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. Sin and death through Adam. Righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. First of all, sin and death through Adam. Look with me again at verses 12 through 15 and 18 and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Notice the emphasis on and the, um, uh, the refrain over and over that it is through one man that sin and death came into the world. Now verse 18, therefore one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And in verse 19, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. If a student turn, turned in a paper to their English professor and it was written like Romans 5, 12 through 21, there would be big red letters at the top saying unnecessary repetition. <laughs> You're saying the same thing over and over and over. And Paul is doing this. And he's not saying it in the exact same way, but he's saying the same thing. Ought we not to sit up in our seats and pay attention when the inspired apostle Paul is, is trying to help us to understand this representative nature of our humanity in Adam? What is the Holy Spirit teaching us here? Well, the first thing we must consider is the word therefore in verse 1. The word therefore is a conjunction that points us back to something that Paul has written previously in order to build upon his teaching. Remember, this book of Romans is written to fledgling churches in Rome, and it's, it's, it's really like a catechism for the early church to make mature disciples. And so Paul is walking through this, not with a bunch of theologians. He's walking through it with, with ordinary Christians whom he wants to drive home the, 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 the reality and the glory and the nature and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that gospel that he declared that he was not ashamed of. Why? Because that gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul is, is, is unpacking this all throughout the book of Romans, and he's come to this section to make it even more clear what this gospel is. And he's building on his teaching. Scholars agree, however, uh, disagree, however, scholars disagree on what exactly Paul is referring to when he points in verses 12 through 21 to these two representatives, Adam and Christ. What is he actually pointing back to as he says, therefore? It seems most likely that Paul is pointing the reader back to more than just the preceding 11 verses. No, Paul's focus on death through Adam's sin and life through Christ's saving work seems to build upon the entirety of Paul's description of the universal depravity and condemnation of mankind in chapter 1, 18 through 320 and the justification of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 11. So really... Uh, what I think makes most sense here as we consider the teaching of Romans 5, 12 through 21 is that when Paul says, therefore, he's saying, therefore, not simply uh, pointing to the preceding 11 verses in, in chapter 5, but, but all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 5, verse 11. Looking at, again, Paul's description of the universal depravity and condemnation of mankind in chapter 118 through 320, and the justification of sinners through faith in Christ, 321 to 511. In other words, as Paul unpacks his teaching on Adam and Christ, he is doing so to give a better understanding of humanity's fallen condition in Adam and the believer's new life in Christ. Paul spills a lot of ink in his letter, does he not? Explaining the wretched and miserable condition of mankind. Just recently I preached uh, on Romans 7 and verses 24 and 25 where Paul at the end of this discussion about the relationship between law and sin, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are wretches outside of Christ. You know, many are trying to scrub language like that from hymnals. Pastors don't want to use it anymore because it might damage the tender and sensitive emotional state of of modern people who need more Oprah Winfrey and less Bible. What all people need is to recognize who they are in Adam and who they can be in Christ. And so Paul spends so much time explaining the wretched and miserable condition of mankind. John Wesley was, of course, a great preacher in London, and he wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a a wretch like me. He was just taking the words of Paul. And he knew as a, an African slave trader who had committed great sins that, that he was now in the hands of a great and merciful God. And he didn't try to cover up his sin or to make excuses or justifications for his sin. He just said, I, I, I was a wretch. 
And God's grace is amazing. That's what we're learning here in this text. And Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 18, if you want to turn there. In chapter 1, verse 18, in this, in this long section on the universal depravity of man, he states that, quote, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Mankind is suppressing the truth. Do we not see this today? People suppressing the truth about what a man is, what a woman is. People suppressing the truth about righteousness in all variety of areas in our culture and society and in our own lives. Paul then explains the three exchanges of sinful humanity. Three exchanges. Verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's what those islanders were doing uh, in Taman as as uh, John Payton went, and they were worshiping the moon and the stars and the bugs and the animals. It's what people have done for ages. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a what? A lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We see this all the time. People worshiping material possessions. People worshiping Hollywood actors. People worshiping family members. People worshiping buildings or cars or jobs or status. God has made us worshiping creatures. He has made us for himself. And when Adam fell and we fell with him, our loves became disordered. And rather than worshiping God and finding our joy in him where there is ultimate joy, we have sought joy and salvation and and other things. And we've worshiped the creature rather than the creator. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. The third exchange in verse 26, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The exchange, the first two exchanges, rather, lead to this third exchange mentioned in the text. If you exchange the truth about God for a lie and you exchange the worship of of God for creatures, then you end up, during a premiership, league match wearing an armband with a rainbow on it, as I saw last night when I was watching Match of the Day. I thought, is this, are my eyes deceiving me? Am I really seeing this? Celebrating the exchanging of natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. These three sinful exchanges are clear evidences of mankind's moral depravity and sinful rebellion against God. Both Jew and Gentile are guilty of such sin and are without excuse, the Bible says. Chapter 3 and verse 9 states that all are under sin. In case uh, there's someone here this morning who's new or hearing some of these things for the first time or for the first time in a long time, Anyone who's thinking rightly in this room this morning 
understands that we are all a part of the all mentioned in this text. All in our natural selves, in our natural conditions, are under sin. Everyone is held accountable before our holy God and our just God. Good works cannot save us. Good works cannot save us because they never measure up to God's righteous standard. We cannot save ourselves. We are held accountable to God and our mouths are closed. We cannot save ourselves through our good works. The question that hasn't been answered up until this point, however, is how sin entered the world. What is sin's origin? And how did humanity come to be so profoundly wretched, depraved, and spiritually undone? How was death introduced into the world? Sometimes in funerals, a pastor will say something like this. Well, you know, death is just a part of life. No, it is not. Death is not a part of life. Death is death, and it's the consequence of sin. It is a great invader. It's been imposed upon us through sin. And it's grievous. What is sin's origin? How did we come to be so profoundly wretched? These are foundational questions, not only as it concerns our fallen condition, but also, as we will see, as it concerns our salvation. Of course, sin wasn't always in the world. We read Genesis 3 earlier. I'm glad we we did that. On the sixth day of creation, God created Adam and Eve in his very own image and created them with original righteousness. So God creates Adam and Eve in his own image and with original righteousness. In the garden paradise, therefore, Adam and Eve were sinless and they lived with God and with one another in perfect communion. Perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience in that time before the fall. Unobstructed communion with God. Their hearts, minds, wills, affections were in perfect conformity to God's law, his law that was written upon their hearts. And God entered into a covenant with Adam. This is how God relates to humanity, through covenants. And in the covenant, God made with Adam the federal head or representative of the entire human race. In this covenant, God made with Adam, he made him federal head or federal representative of the entire human race. Adam, please get this, Adam is the representative of humanity because God made him the representative of humanity. And he said to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve were created in original righteousness. But their original condition was mutable. Their original condition was mutable. It could change. Upon the breaking of God's command, their condition could change. And not just their condition, but the condition of their posterity, namely us, the entire human race. 
Of course, we learn from Genesis 3 that our first parents gave in to this temptation of Satan. Believing the lie, remember exchanging the truth of God for a lie? This begins in the garden. They believed the lie that God's word is not trustworthy. That we are better off on our own, doing things our own way, and constructing our own version of truth and morality. You remember what Satan said to Eve? You will be like God. In other words, you can come up with your own form of morality, your own version. Won't that be better than God's? It's the same lie Satan is telling people today. And so they ate of the forbidden fruit, introduced sin into the world, and brought on God's curse. And mankind no longer enjoys perfect fellowship with God. In fact, quite the opposite. His condition became one of moral depravity and misery. The seeds of death entered humanity, inviting physical death and spiritual death and the dreaded second death, namely eternal death. And the image of God, which was in such a perfect state with original righteousness, has been shattered in us so that it's still there, but it is shattered and needs to be repaired. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains this well in questions 21 through 23. Did man continue in that estate wherein God first created him? Our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will through the temptation of Satan transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby fell from the estate of innocency wherein they were created. 22, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? Answer, the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Don't you love that little clause, that little glimpse of Christ when it says, and all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation? That's because there was one man we're going to learn about in a minute who wasn't, wasn't from Adam by ordinary generation. Question 23, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. What a helpful description of the world today. Read the headlines. Read the headlines. Sin, misery, brokenness, darkness, hopelessness, arrogance, pride, despair, anxiety, depression, suicide, hate, anger, rebellion. It is all what our world is today. And people can give their flowery descriptions of the love that we all have for one another or should have for one another, but they, they just fall down so quickly because of the state of humanity's hearts. I'm not saying there isn't common grace in the world and that even those who do not walk with God or know Christ 
do not do kind or nice things. At times, of course they do by God's common grace. But as we take the entire world and all that's taking place today, this is a perfect description. This is the natural fallen state into which we are all born. We are all born with original sin, a moral cancer that started with Adam and spread throughout all of humanity. Therefore, and this is important, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. It's what Paul is describing in our text for this morning. Verse 12, verse 12, look there with me again. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, And then verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Thomas Boston, in his classic work entitled Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, a a wonderful book. In fact, if you have never read this book, I want to encourage you to read it, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Boston employs a helpful illustration of the stalks or trunks of two trees. The first one is Adam, and the second one is Christ. All of humanity is born into the natural tree of Adam. The natural tree is a dead and putrefying tree. This tree has no spiritual life. It bears no good fruit. In fact, the fruit it does bear is rotten because it's corrupted. Boston writes that the, quote, fruits are like the apples of Sodom, fair to look at, but fall to ashes when handled and tried, end quote. The stalk and roots of the tree are dead, and thus there is no sap flowing through the trunk or the branches. There is no life at all in the tree of Adam. And again, every person ever born is a branch on this tree. Every person ever born into this world by natural generation is a branch on this tree, this cursed tree, this tree of death. Jesus says in Matthew seven seventeen, doesn't he, that, quote, a diseased tree bears bad fruit and that it cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When we understand original sin and its destructive power, it makes sense of passages like, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, verses where Paul is describing the spiritual condition of the Ephesian Christians prior to coming to know Christ, when they were only united to Adam. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes, And you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dear ones, this, this corrupt state of mankind is Again, precisely why the world is the way it is today, so filled with idolatry and false worship and pride and lust and sexual deviancy and divorce and lies and deceit and war and covetousness and murder. 
These are the fruit of the natural spiritual condition of mankind united to Adam. We are born in sin, as David expressed in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Mankind has a disease called sin, and everyone is born with it. We are all born branches in the tree of Adam. Again, it's precisely why Paul writes in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. And verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Tell me some good news, Pastor. Maybe you're thinking it. There's a wonderful sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Justification of God in the Damnation of Sinners. And about halfway through it, six or 7,000 words into this sermon, very long sermon, you are sensing the weight of God's holiness the weight of, what, of your own sin and the great need of God's grace. And isn't this what Paul is trying to help us with? Some might ask, what hope then is there for humanity? If we are born attached to the tree of Adam, that is, born in sin, alienated from God, and are unable to save ourselves, what hope do we have? Well, here is the good news for you this morning. There is another tree. There is another tree. And its roots and trunk are full of spiritual life and blessing. The stalk or trunk of this tree is Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the life-giving Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Those who by grace through faith, place their trust in him, are regenerated, that is, raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are brought from the dead by the grace of God into union with Christ, who is himself this glorious tree. And so we have righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. Look with me again at Romans 5 and verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And then verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, namely the work of Christ, that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is, all men who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's all that Paul's been talking about from 321 to 5 verse 11. Do you see what Paul is saying here? In Adam we are lost, but in Christ we are found. United to Adam, we are spiritually dead in sin, but united to Christ by faith, we are brought to spiritual life and salvation. 
In Adam, we are richly and, and, and justly condemned before a holy God. But in Christ, we are justified before God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. Represented only by the first Adam, we are doomed to everlasting death and hell, a hell which we deserve. But represented by Christ, through faith, we are promised everlasting life in heaven, that which we do not deserve. We do not deserve one single moment in heaven. But in Christ, we receive it as a free gift. We receive it as a free gift. Verse 21, look with me at verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God's word is teaching us here that there is death in Adam, but life in Jesus Christ. And what does God do when he saves a person? but sovereignly and graciously remo- removes them from that putrefying tree. He, he, he breaks them off and he engrafts them into the tree of Christ, into the living vine. And when engrafted into this living tree or vine of Christ, the life-giving Holy Spirit makes that branch alive in Christ. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 after this section on who they were. He now tells them who they are and he says, but now, but now you are alive in Christ. He has caused you to be born again. He has made you alive. By grace through faith you are saved. And what happens when you are broken off of this tree of Adam and engrafted into into Christ, what happens but that you begin to bear good fruit, the fruit of righteousness in him, that fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That branch begins to give off the fruit of gratitude and love to God and love for neighbor. It's not a perfect love. Until the day we die in this life, we will need the grace of God any day as much as we needed it the first day. We received it. Every single day we need Christ as much as we did the day before and we will the day after. But in Christ we are saved and we have been, we have been declared righteous in God's sight, not because of anything we have done, but because Christ went to Calvary and he died on the cross and he spilled his blood to wash away the penalty of our sins, to remove that penalty, and then to give us his righteousness. You remember that original righteousness given in the garden that was lost? Well, in Christ, we receive Christ's righteousness. We are robed with that righteousness, and now we stand before God, not in the tattered robes of our unrighteousness and our failed attempts to obey God's law. Now we stand before God by grace through faith in Christ, forgiven of all of our sins, the blood of Christ washing away all of our sins, and robed in the very sparkling righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God looks down from his, his judgment throne and he says, Not guilty. 
not guilty because you are clothed in the righteousness of my son. He represents you. He is at my right hand and he is your advocate. He is your friend. He is your prophet, priest, and king and he will never, never leave you or forsake you. Dear believer, this is the Christ who represents you in heaven right now. The Christ that is being preached is your savior. Trust in him, believe in him. Do not believe the lies of the devil that sin is better than Christ because sin will take you to hell but Christ will take you to heaven to be with him forever. Boston explains it this way, quote, now as in the natural grafting, the branch being taken up is put into the stock and being put into it becomes one with it so that they are united. Even so, in the spiritual engrafting, Christ apprehends the sinner and the sinner being apprehended of Christ apprehends him and so they become one. Some might say, I don't believe this teaching about the imputation of Adam's sin to me. How can someone who lived so long ago affect me and my soul today? Well, the same question could be asked about the saving work of Christ. How could what Christ did so long ago affect me and my soul today? The answer is that in the first Adam, all of humanity fell into sin and its miserable effects. Adam's sin was imputed to us. And we see its effects in our lives and in this world every single day. One of my mentors, when he hears bad news or talks about bad news with others, he says, you know, I have categories for this. As a Christian, I have categories for what's happening in the world. It's called depravity. It's called being an Adam. But in the second Adam, the life-giving Adam, Jesus Christ, sinners are raised from death to life. His righteousness is imputed to us through faith and united to him we are saved from God's just wrath. Apart from Christ, we are in Adam and if you can imagine a cup filled with something, this cup is filled and overflowing with unrighteousness and death. That's who we are in Adam in our natural condition. Imagine this cup here. This is the righteousness of Christ. It's filled. Christ is filled with righteousness. It's overflowing. What happens when Christ goes to the cross is all of our unrighteousness, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are nailed to the cross, and Christ dies for those sins. He takes the punishment that we deserve. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken on the cross for you and for me. And then, uh, this doesn't stay empty. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account, to our cup. And so when we stand before God, we don't stand before God positionally as wretched sinners. We stand before God as those who are justified. and are being sanctified. Robert Mounts helpfully explains it in this way. Redemption is the story of two men. The first man disobeyed God and led the entire human race in the wrong direction. The second man obeyed 
God and provides justification for all who will turn to him in faith. No matter how devastating the sin of the first, the redemptive work of the second reverses the consequences of that sin and restores people to the favor of God. Only by grasping the seriousness of this first is one able to appreciate the remarkable magnanimity of the second. Let me ask you, are you in Adam this morning or are you in Christ? I ask the youngest to the oldest in this room, are you in Adam or are you by grace through God-given faith in Christ? He is coming again to judge the world. Will you stand before him at the judgment as a son or daughter of Adam or as a son or daughter of the living God in Christ? Will you merely be a dead branch attached to the stock of Adam or a living, Holy Spirit-filled, fruit-bearing branch engrafted into Christ? Will you stand before God in your own sin or will you stand before God united to Jesus forgiven of your sin and robed in his perfect righteousness. There are no more important questions for the world today. It's more important than when the war will end in the Ukraine. It's more important than gas prices in the United States or Great Britain. It's more important than who your next uh, prime minister will be. These questions are of ultimate importance. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to him for forgiveness and salvation. And finally, remember that Christ entered this world, a world filled with sin, misery, and death to rescue us from it. He went through hell on the cross so that you would not have to. He did this for you. He did this for me. Therefore, may we not give our chief affections to the things of this world, to that which is perishing and fading, but may we, by God's grace, give ourselves to Christ. Children, give yourselves to Christ. Let us all give ourselves to him, to his truth, to his mission. For in him, through faith, is reconciliation with God is justification before God and is life and salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this glorious text of Scripture. And would you stamp it upon our hearts and that it would be with us for all of our days as we put our hope and our trust in the living vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.